Islam is no more the religion of the sword than Christianity is. And it's, uh, yeah, it's really interesting, because I guess that's supposed to be some random Arab dude. I don't know if this person's ever seen a horse before. It's a really weird drawing of a horse. And this is great, because you have this little, the, you know, Bismillah Rahman Rahim up there. It's like, it's like, yeah, in the name of God, the all, the all compassionate, awesome. Okay, so here's what we need to understand. Is as far as Europe and North Africa and the Middle East are concerned, Christianity and Islam definitely arise together and at the same time. I think most people have this weird feeling that Christianity is much, much older than Islam. And yes, the person of Jesus Christ lived 600 some years before the person of the prophet Muhammad. But at the life and time of Muhammad, there were very, very few Christians in Europe. Right? During the life of Muhammad, almost all of the Christians that exist in the world live in an area where today there are very few Christians, which is to say they live in what is now the Holy Land, they live in what is now Anatolia, North Africa, and almost all of them speak Greek. There are other Christians elsewhere, but the, the majority of, of Christianity, sorry, the majority of Christianity is centered in a part of the world where today there are very few Christians. Understanding the nature of European Christianity prior to the arrival of Islam is very difficult. And I don't just mean like, oh, it's complicated. I mean, there's almost no source material. If you pick up an anthology of early Christian writers, people who are writing about Christianity before, let's say, the year 500, almost all of them are writing in Greek, and none of them is from what we would call Europe, right? The early desert fathers and desert mothers, the people who are writing the first foundational texts, they're from North Africa, they're from the Middle East, they're from the area of Anatolia. This idea we have of a place called Christendom doesn't exist at the time of Muhammad. Especially since, you notice I put Christendom up here. At the time of Muhammad, if there is a place called Christendom, it's here. Which is to say, right on Muhammad's doorstep. So the source material we have on what Christianity is before Islam is light on the ground and very biased in favor of saying that Christianity is this very large well-off religion. Not only that, but this period is very much focused on heresies. Heresies and schisms, this, these breaks. These. Christians are far more concerned with bad Christians than they are with anyone else. Bad Christians in the sense of people who believe almost the exact same thing as they do, but not quite. Okay, so to be a heretic, meaning that you call yourself a Christian, but you don't believe exactly the same things I do. You disagree with me on the exact philosophical meaning of baptism, or the exact nature of Jesus, 
when he was alive, was he fully God or was he fully man or was he fully God and fully man? And you might think this is a stupid question. Like, how we can't know the answer to this, right? There's no blood test you can give to somebody and this person's been dead for hundreds of years. But I'm telling you right now, if we're reading early Christian sources, the only thing they really care about is weeding out the heresies. And there are dozens of them. With many of these heresies, almost no historical evidence remains because the heretics are wiped out and all of their texts are burned. With some of these heresies, there was no historical footprint until, until modern archaeology. Right? With the discovery of such things as the Dead Sea Scrolls, we finally have the survival of texts that have long thought to be completely destroyed. So when Islam arrives on the doorstep of Europe, it was an open question as to which version of events that written down by the early apostles and that revealed by Muhammad, which of these would become the dominant story. So in the early spread of Islam, everything south of this imaginary line is Islamic, which is to say the original heartland of Christianity has now accepted a new version of events. Again, Islam is absolutely focused on the life of Jesus Christ and his mother and father, and what he said and what it means. So it's not like they're replacing it with a new religion. In fact, for the early Christians, they thought of Islam as just another heresy. They saw it no different than any of the other heresies they talked about. This is just a new version of events. Because Islam does teach in the divine nature of Jesus Christ. He is created by God. God, right? His mother has no, there's no, there's no physical father, but they don't accept then that Jesus Christ is God or that he rose from the dead. Okay. So again, the dominant position of Christianity at the time of Muhammad is here. There are pockets, but these pockets are far, few, and in between. Most of the buildup is in areas that we now associate with Islam. So here's your typical map of the spread of Islam, basically including two islands in the Arabian Gulf, and then within two centuries, reaching most of Eurasia. And I would argue that this map probably should be bigger. I, I think it spreads further into Africa by this point. But this map doesn't include most of the southern portion of Africa. Islam is the dominant religion of Africa from then until, until today. So why, why does it spread this far? What are its sort of natural confines? For a long time, Christian scholars 
seeing Islam as just another heresy, have argued that Islam could never really reach into Christian Europe because Christianity is, of course, the, the, the true and you know, righteous path of God. But in reality, the borders are they're almost entirely natural, which is to say these have always been the sort of the dividing points. They were the dividing points under the Phoenicians, under the Greeks and Romans. So, Rashidun, this un is just the plural. The word we want here is Rashid. Rashid just means righteous, the correct, the four rightly guided. Why are they called rightly guided? Because in the world today, Islam is very diverse. There are many types of Islamic groups. What separates out the Rashidun is everyone who is a Muslim today pretty much, except these four, did an okay job. They did the best they could. They are the four who were supposed to succeed after Muhammad. Once you get past these four, agreement ends. Once you get past these four, wars have been fought fighting over who should have come into power next. The first of them is the father-in-law of Muhammad. And one of the main reasons he is able to take over is he just happens to be one of the oldest living men who knows Muhammad well at that time. He rules for two years because he's old, right? He dies of natural causes. And I want to make this clear. One of the issues with Muhammad is he does not leave a clear indicator of what the Muslim community should do regarding its leadership. There's nothing in the Quran or the Hadith or the Sunnah to suggest who is supposed to lead the Muslim community. So in the absence of any guidance, they turn to their own traditions, the you know, predominantly Arab traditions of patriarchy, right? Who is the oldest person who is related to Muhammad? And that would be his father-in-law. Following the death of Abu Bakr, we have Abu Bakr's closest companion. And one of the reasons he is chosen is he's quite young. And when he dies, it is not natural causes. The only leaders of the early Muslim world to die of natural causes are Muhammad and Abu Bakr. Everyone else dies violently, usually through assassination. So Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and then Ali. I understand that these names can be unfamiliar, right? So if you prefer these all have various different spellings, right? This vowel doesn't really matter. He could be Omar, or Ammar, or Umar. Say for Uthman. This also will turn into Ottoman. When we talk about the Ottoman Empire, it is called the Ottoman because it's named after this guy. You'll also see this as Osman because this letter in Arabic is kind of hard for other people to say. It's not, exact, it's not exactly the. 
It's something in between. And so depending on what language you're speaking, this TH might turn into a Z or an S or a D. So Athman, Osman, Othman. Don't be confused, right? This is the problem with transliterating between different languages, different alphabets. So Ali is the last of the Rashidun. And this is the foundational disagreement between the so-called Sunnis and the Shiites. If you know one thing about modern Islam, probably, it is that Sunnis and Shiites hate each other. It's not entirely true, there's a lot more nuance to it, but they definitely disagree over who should be in control of the religion we call Islam. The Sunni essentially recognized that Islam is a religion and not necessarily a political system. Like, yes, there can be an Islamic state, but Muhammad and God did not give us specifics on to how to elect the leader. Should it be a king or a president? Right? The politics are not that clear. Shiites say it is clear. Islam is a political system and it should be ruled by the Holy Family. The Holy Family that is descended from Adam through Abraham and Noah and Moses and Jesus and Muhammad. That argument is that all of those people, they're related to each other. And we should be led by the last descendants of this line, whoever those people might be. Then the discussion becomes, well, how do we know who is, who living today is a scion of that family? That's a major claim to make. If I stand up and say, I, I am the only living male to male to male descendant of Jesus and Muhammad and Ali. Well, how do you prove something like that? It would help if you could do some miracles. So after Ali, the, the, the Rashidun end, right? The rightly guided I want to make this clear. They're called the rightly guided only because everyone agrees that they should rule. The Sunnis and the Shiites. After the Rashidun, it's not like everything falls apart. Like, oh, Ali is assassinated. Yeah, so was Uthman. So was Omar. Being assassinated by itself does not constitute a new thing. But this is where the split between the Sunni and the Shiite, this idea of who has the right to rule over us. Very similar to early Christianity. Okay, because the early Christians also have this debate. Are we a religion or are we a way of life, a political system? So we go to church and there's a priest and a bishop. What are they what are they to us? Are they the mayor? Are they the governor? When Christianity is absorbed into the Roman Empire, that question is answered. The emperor is also God's shadow on earth. The church is led by this state. Very similar to what's going to happen in the Islamic world. 
where once a powerful enough political entity comes in, that political entity says, well, I'm in control. I, I rule the religious establishment. So the word to, to focus on here is caliph or khalif or caliphate, right? So khalif in Arabic just means successor, follower, heir, the person who comes after. That's what all of this is about. That's what the question is. Okay, Muhammad has died. Who comes after? He didn't tell us who. He didn't pick. If he would have just said, like lifted up a hand and pointed a finger and said, him, let him follow me, everything would have been settled. Now, Uthman and Ali both have their claims as to why they and their descendants, they and their families should rule. And this is the precursor, the, the beginning, the, the sort of foundation of this split between the Sunnis and the Shiites that has lasted from the 700s until, until today. If you see a story in the newspaper of a bombing in Iraq or similar place where someone has blown up a mosque, this is not the action of like some Buddhist or Christian terrorist. This is the action of typically a Sunni terrorist blowing up a Shiite mosque or vice versa. In all of these unending wars in the Middle East, I think many people in America and Europe have this idea that this is a war between Christians and Muslims. When if you're looking at the body count, it is a war between Sunnis and Shiites. That is what it has been since the beginning. Right? ISIS killed way more Shiites and bad Sunnis, in their understanding, than they killed Christians. But the average American doesn't give two shits about that, unfortunately. And they focus on, oh, but look at this little Christian community. Their church was blown up. Well, yeah, their church was blown up because it was next to the mosque that got blown up. People love to focus on the fact that of the Rashidun, only Abu Bakr died a natural death. And people point this out because they think that Islam is like inherently a far more violent religion than any other religion that's ever existed. And that's fine. You can say that. All you're doing is showcasing your ignorance. They're like, okay, well, what do you know about Buddhism then? And unfortunately, the average American thinks that Buddhism is like, I don't know, the, the religion of meditation and like stupid self-help, like new age gurus in LA. No, Buddhism is just as violent as any of these, as violent as Judaism, as violent as Christianity. All these religions come with it some understanding of when is it okay to kill another human being. And they all basically say almost never. And yet followers of these religions find a way to make it okay. There's the word again, caliphate. Right? The meaning that the, the political system of the khalif, of the successor of Muhammad. The caliphate as a political institution is never mentioned in the Quran. Although the Quran asserts that the Prophet is a mortal like other men, it makes no provision, no plan for how the Muslim community should govern itself after he passes from the scene. Indeed, the Quran does not envisage a faithful community of believers in the absence of a Prophet. Which is problematic, really. Because the Quran is very clear, Muhammad is it. 
He is the seal of the prophets. So whoever comes after, God is not going to be talking to him. He said what he had to say, and he said it to Muhammad. So some of the leaders of the caliphate bear some variety of Khalifa, Khalifa Rasulullah, Khalifa Rasulullah. All this meaning just successor. The successor, the successor of the messenger of God, the successor of God, the successor of the successor of the messenger of God, and so on and so forth. You'll also see them referred to as the Amir al-Mu'amin, just meaning commander of the faithful, commander of the believers. Amir, Emir, Mirza, Amirzadeh, all these meaning essentially commander, leader. You'll sometimes see the word imam, which is much more religious in, in meaning, typically. We think of like the leader of a religious community. And you also see the word sultan. None of these words is the equivalent of Muhammad. None of these words gives that person in a, the same position as Muhammad. If you're a fan of, of fantasy books, this is something not unlike the situation in like a Lord of the Rings situation, where like there is no king, there has been no king for thousands of years. That king left us his second in command. And even though the second in command has passed down leadership from son to son to son for a thousand years, that second-in-command will never take the throne in their own name. They can't. No one would accept them if they did. There are two essential uh, strategies for teaching about forced religious conversions, specifically with Islam in the picture. One of them is we say, well, okay, maybe there were first forced conversions, but it's no different than what the Christians did in Europe. Or others say, actually, we don't really have a lot of evidence of, of forced conversions in Islam, other than what the Christians talk about. I tend to, to, to focus on the second variety, because it's true, we, we don't have a lot of evidence of the idea of somebody walking up to somebody else with a sword or in other words, threatening to kill them and saying, guess what, you're Muslim now. Largely, this is because the early Islamic expansion is among religions specifically protected by the Quran. There are religions that are not protected by the Quran, and in those cases, the violence is much more extreme and explicit. But that's later in the game. In the first two, call it three, maybe four centuries of Islam, most of the people encountering Islam are either Christian or Jewish. And these two faiths are specifically protected in the Quran. The Quran has been revealed to Muhammad specifically to help them to put them back on the right path. Whether they accept this or not is a different question. 
it's much more meaningful to, to regard this expansion as both gradual and permanent. Which is to say, Islam becomes the dominant political system, and there are many benefits to being Muslim if you're living in a politically Muslim environment. Yes, Christianity and Judaism have protections in this system. You're not supposed to force them or ask them to convert. You're not supposed to touch their holy structures. They can govern themselves. They can do whatever they want. But they're not supposed to actively build their religion. They're not supposed to proselytize. You can keep your synagogue, just don't build another one. You can keep your church, just don't build another one. You can fix up your old church, but you should not be out in the streets evangelizing. You should not be trying to convert or baptize non-Christians. Similarly, we all pay taxes, Muslims included, but the Christians and the Jews should probably pay more for the right to maintain their religion. Similarly, if you are a merchant, you will pay higher dues if you're not Muslim. So very quickly, the richest people in the society have a very clear incentive to at least convert in name only. To at least say, yeah, sure, I'm Muslim now. And this is the part where I remind you that Islam does not typically have a public conversion event. Christianity is quite special in that you have the baptism, which is a very important ritual, and it's clearly laid out both in the Bible and in the early texts of the Christians. Like, this is not a thing you do in private. You can if you have to, but it should be public. Islam is could not be more different. You can become a Muslim sitting in a closet in a darkened room, and no one will know. All you have to do is say, there is no God but God, and... I believe that Muhammad was the messenger of God. And if you say that and believe it, that's it. You don't even have to say it to anybody else. No one has to hear you say this. More than that, I should say, Christianity and Judaism both put a premium on the value of loyalty to the point of death. Right? Like, I'm sure most Christian children at some point have fantasized about some crazed man with an axe or a machine gun walking into their church and saying, all the true Christians throw your hands up so I can kill you. And that little kid wonders, am I a true Christian? Will I die for the faith? That's not really a thing in Islam. God specifically tells people, don't be stupid. If someone's gonna kill you, tell them whatever they wanna hear because I know your heart. If you say something to stay alive, I'm not gonna hold that against you. If a Christian walks up with a sword and says, convert or I'll kill you, just tell them, sure, I'm a Christian. I'll know inside you're still a Muslim. It's a very different approach to this idea of, of how public should your religious faith be. And if you think that comes across as strange, understand a lot of what Jesus was saying to the Jews was public faith is not where it's at. Right? That's, that's the main difference. He's saying, don't pray like the hypocrites do. Pray in secret. Don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. Muhammad takes that to the next level. 
It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It is a myth that Islam is spread entirely by the sword. It actually was attractive to the people of this time. Largely because compared to the Roman and the Persian Empire, Islamic rule involved almost no taxes. And if you're a Christian or Jewish, you don't have to convert. And most of the people living in this area are Christian or Jewish. Now, it's a very different picture when the Muslims arrive in India. So the Quran gives no such protections to Zoroastrians or Buddhists or Hindus. They are idolaters, they are heathens. They need to learn about God or get out. And this also helps explain why the Christian expansion in Europe is similarly violent. Because most of the people they are dealing with are similarly not really accounted for in the Bible. So the next word I want to teach you about is ma'ula. This is the secret ingredient, the secret sauce. This is what allows the slow, gradual conversion of a massive population of people. Again, by population, the Arab Peninsula is almost non-existent. So how do they spread a religion that is here amongst a few thousand people, amongst the millions of people who live in North Africa, Anatolia, and parts of Southern Europe? The answer is through the Maula. Okay, I know, I keep on showing you this map. I, I want you to realize how crazy it is. The population living here is minimal. There are teeny tiny little towns, little oases in the middle of a desert. These towns have maybe a few hundred, at most a few thousand people. When's the last time a, a population that small has had such an outsized effect? So I'm gonna talk more about the Maula in just a second. I want you to walk you through what the Maula achieved. Because very shortly after the death of Muhammad, it did look like Islam was going away. With the assassinations of the early Rashidun, we have these, this lack of political will, right? There are many people who are Muslim looking at each other saying, if this is what Islam gets us, what's the point? Right, there's a sense of, of multiple camps fighting with each other. They look at the Quran and they say, there's no guidance in here. Sure, it's full of like really nice pie-in-the-sky ideas about how to treat people more fairly, how to have a more just and equitable society, but there's no practical advice. Everyone somehow connected to Muhammad, whether it's his wives, his descendants, his in-laws, everyone wants a piece of the pie. All of them are acting in the name of Muhammad, but Muhammad is dead. And there are always grifters and people who want to take advantage of the situation who are happy to come in and, and take advantage of this ill will. The civil war 
shortly after the death of Muhammad, it hasn't been that closely studied. It, to me, it's one of the most interesting events in Islam because I don't understand how Islam survived it. Because at this point, how many Muslims are there, really? Tens of thousands? Hundreds of thousands, I doubt. And with the assassination of Ali, if you were a betting person alive in the 600s, you would say, well, that's that. Islam as an idea, if it's, if it's a divine revelation, then God should have picked somebody else. Because the, the ultimate question can never be answered. Who do you think can follow Muhammad? If he is the seal of the prophets, he tells us he's the last one, who can follow in his footsteps? And again, it's, it's an identical question that the Christians have. Jesus died and rose again and only appeared to a select number of people, but didn't really give clear advice as to, well, how, how do we live our lives? Right? If you're reading the Bible, the Acts of the Apostle try to answer that question, but the Acts aren't written by, they're not the words of Jesus. Right? Acts is after death, resurrection, ascension. And what exactly is the successor of Muhammad supposed to do? Does he just, does he just, is he a religious leader? Military? Political? Does he collect taxes? What is he supposed to do with that money? Now, if you are a Sunni Muslim, the authority of the Khalif or Caliph is mostly social authority, the mayor of town. If you are a Shiite, it's mostly religious authority. The mayor can be somebody else. The Khalif is Muhammad's successor. He will tell us who the good Muslim and who the bad Muslims are and what a good Muslim is supposed to do. The Rashidun were both, right? They had both political and religious authority. But after the Rashidun, they took no religious authority. They entirely said, listen, I'm just here. I'm in control of the army. I collect taxes. I, I listen to what the religious scholars tell me. There are people in my court whose whole job is to study the Quran and interpret it and tell me what it means, and they will tell me who the good Muslims and the bad Muslims are. It's not on me. Which is interesting, right? This is the successor of Muhammad saying, yeah, I leave what Muhammad said to other people. What's most problematic about this is people look at ISIS or Al-Qaeda today and this idea that they're going to restart the caliphate, but that's their own ignorance of history. The caliphate has not had religious authority since that generation after Muhammad. Why not? Because when they had religious authority, it was the most dangerous job you could have. None of them survived. They all were assassinated. If you want to live a long life as a khalif, keep your mouth shut about religion. It's good advice in general, I guess. Okay. Now that. Next question. Since 
I did just tell you this, and hopefully you already remember. What does Khalif mean? Or Caliph, or whatever. Khalif. Just one word translation. Khalif. What is a Khalif? I don't need to know who the Khalifs were. Just what is it? What does it mean to be a Khalif? Or Caliph. I don't care how you want to say this in your head. C-A-L-I-P-H or K-H-A-L-I-F or whatever. All right. Now that we're moving on from that. Ibn'ula is yet another Arabic word for us to try to mangle. And it answers this question. How Arab was the Arab conquest? Now, I have not said Arab conquest yet. I've said expansion, Muslim expansion. But traditionally, Christian historians have referred to this as the Arab conquest. When they see that map of the expansion of Islam, they imagine thousands of dark-skinned Arabs riding camels, waving curved swords, riding into town and saying, who doesn't want to be Muslim? Line up so we can kill you. I don't say Arab conquest because it was not a conquest by Arabs. Arabic will eventually become the dominant language but it isn't from the beginning. How many Arabs are involved? I think not very many at all. The early Khalif of the Umayyads did structure their military along Arab lines, meaning that every branch of the military was maintained by one specific Arab tribe Right? Again, there are dozens of tribes. Here's the kicker. Membership in these tribes does not require birth or marriage. Literally, anyone can walk up to this tribe and say, hey, can I join your tribe? And the answer will be yes. Yes, if you do these things and agree to live by our laws, yes. The Arab tribes of the 600s might have a few hundred or a few thousand people in them. By the 800s, any one of these tribes is the population of hundreds of thousands or millions. That is not from babies. Okay? Early in the campaign to take over Persia, there's an army, we are told, that is 54,000 men strong. The largest tribe in this army are the Maula. Again, the plural is Mawali. They are larger than any of the other tribes. There are dozens and dozens of tribes there. Some of the tribes only have a dozen people. Some are several hundred people. The largest single tribe is the Mawali. But what is, what is this tribe? What is the tribe of Mawali? They are people who have joined the Arabs who are not Arab. They could have any background. They could be Franks. They could be Goths or Huns or Romans or Persians or Egyptians. Whatever they are, they're not Arab.
All of the early converts to Islam who are not Arab are called Mawali. The problem is Islam is supposed to be a universal religion. All men and women are equal before God and should receive equal treatment. That's in column A. In column B, God sent this revelation to Muhammad in the Arabic language. So clearly God likes Arabs most. That's in column B. That tension between column A and column B has been a problem since then up until now. How important is the Arabic language and the Arab people to God? If you're non-Arab, Muslim, you think not important at all. It's a coincidence of history. Muhammad could have been from anywhere. God had to pick someone just like he sent Jesus to the Palestinians, just like he sent Abraham to the Sumerians. He sent Muhammad to the Arabs and to everyone. But if you're an Arab, Oh, sure, we're all equal, but some of us are more equal than others. Every caliph appointed multiple, and everyone at least one, maula as leaders, as rulers. So these maula, they, they're not Arab, but they have power. How could, how could it be otherwise? They're the dominant people. The maula, we don't know what their background is. Right? They, they could be originally Buddhist or originally Christian or originally Jewish. The point is now they're Muslim and now they're with us. So again, the word is Mawla. That's one person. If I have two Mawali, or I should say three or more, because Arab has, Arabic has a very really great grammar system though. I don't have time to tell you right now, but the point is they actually have a special word of, for plurals that are just two. I don't know, I think it's kind of neat, but we don't have to get into it. So maula is one of the most difficult words to translate into English. Because depending on the context, it means things that are opposites. There are words like this in English as well. One of the most famous examples, and you'll find it in the Bible in English, we have the word cleave. Cleave, C-L-E-A-V-E. It's where uh, cleavage comes from, right? To cleave means both to split apart and join together. It means both of them at the same time. Right? The Bible tells you that this, these two people will be cleft apart, meaning separated. A woman will leave her family and cleave to her husband. Languages are weird, okay? This very pop, most languages probably have words like this. In Arabic, this is one of them. Maula. It means both a free person, also a slave. In this case, we understand that it means a free person. But this is where the debate is. Maybe the Mawali are actually should be regarded as slaves. All the evidence points to, no, they're not slaves. They, they, they get paid, they go where they want, they own property. They don't look like slaves. But if you are a Christian historian working in the 1500s and you already know that Islam is evil and sent by Satan, 
The Mawali are obviously all slaves. So to be a Mawla means that you have Walla. This is, where, this is the word that is the root of it. This, from this word, you can create both a slave or a free person, that there's some connection. So the, the, the complicated way to say this is independence of action through a dependent relationship. We have a relationship, you and I. Maybe I'm your employer. Maybe I'm your godfather. Maybe I'm just an old family friend. You can do whatever you want. Some of these things you do, you can only do because of our relationship. Right? Let's say I'm like your least favorite uncle's friend or whatever. But I happen to own this car dealership and you need a job in the summer. And I give you the job instead of somebody else. Because you're my ma'ala. I don't own you. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm nothing to you. Right? The easiest way to talk about this is like a client-patron relationship in business. It is hotly debated then, because the Arab texts understand that the, the success of Islam is 100% dependent on the Mawali. We can do nothing without them. There aren't enough Arabs, okay? Like, if the Arabs are supposed to conquer the world, I'm sorry, there aren't enough of them. There weren't enough of them then, there aren't enough of them now. We need help. Because this word is so, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate accident that this word means both slave and free person. And so you will find in America, people reading in English and writing in English, who will say, Maula means slave. Specifically, Daniel Pipes, who was very close with the Bush administration, extremely far-right scholar. And then Encyclopedia of Islam, which says, no, obviously Maula means free person. And you might think, well, what does it matter? Well, it matters because it colors everything else we know about this word. I fall down on the side of the Encyclopedia of Islam, but I want to call myself a, a fair professor, a fair historian, and I will point out, there's debate. I do not have enough evidence to say this person is wrong or this person is right. But I think the evidence we have suggests that Maula does not mean slave. In any event, everyone agrees that after the conquest, after about the year 750, the word comes to mean free person, free person only. So whatever it meant in the 600s, we can debate till we're blue in the face. But once we get to mature Islam, Maula comes to mean basically a free person who has converted to Islam who is not Arab. Now, if you're paying attention, or if you have an inquisitive form of mind, you may be wondering, well, wait a minute. What if you're Arab and not Muslim? Well, then you're not, you're not, in, these, you're not in this equation, right? Because all of these texts assume to be Arab is to be Muslim. But it has never been true that all Arabs are Muslim. Not then and not now. The majority of Arabs are. The word Maula shows up in the Quran one time, 
This sentence here, God is the Maula of the faithful. And the unfaithful, the unbelievers, have no Maula. So you tell me, what, from that sentence, what does this word mean? In Arabic, we also have this word, Maulana. There's no debate. Maulana definitely means Lord or Master. And so, from this, people assume that Maula means Master. Because God cannot be a slave. And this is also where the word Mullah comes from. If you go to a mosque today, that mosque might have an Imam, it might have a Mullah. It's that same sense of leader or master or head. Yeah, we're not going to just study Arabic language in this class, but I wish we had the time to do that. Call them your brothers in faith, your ma'allahs, if you don't know their ancestors' names. This is from the hadith, this is from the sunnah. This is what Muhammad is saying. Hey, what happens if, we, if someone converts to Islam and they have no tribe? How do we as Arabs interact with them? The tribe is everything in the Arabic culture of Muhammad's time. All of their political and legal interactions are based around the tribe. Which is to say, if you have no tribal affiliation, we have no way to deal with you. I, I can't conduct business with you. I can't sign a contract with you. I can't marry into your family. You can't marry into mine. Unless you become a ma'ala. What becomes tricky is, in the conquest, in the expansion, some of the mawali don't convert to Islam. This is where things get tricky. We have ma'ala who are Christian, ma'ala who are Jewish, and even a few who are Buddhist. They're valuable friends. They come with money, they come with resources, they come with armies, and they join the expansion. They have an official role. They are Maula. Do they have to convert? Well, no. In fact, it's better if they don't. Let me say that again. It's better if they don't. The early Islamic expansion had relatively few public converts. Most of the lands they conquered were not full of converts to Islam. Because if you convert to Islam, we have to accept you as an equal. That's a, that's a, that's a problem, right? It means you pay less taxes. It means you have full legal rights. We would prefer if you entered our society at a lower tier. This Muslim society is tribally based. Everyone has to know what tribe they're associated with, because the various tribes have different jobs. These non-Arabs have no history, they have no genealogy, they have no tribe that the Arabs can understand. Calling them all Mawali seems to fix the problem. Let me make this very clear. The word Maula was not invented by Muhammad. The word Maula is as ancient as any other word in the Arab language. Okay? It was just the way for Arabs to deal with non-Arabs. 
Think of it like the word barbarian. It just means not heir. That's it. It's just something to, to deal with foreigners. It was never going to be a problem. But with the expansion, we now have this word, this Arab word, that will create a population that is 10 times, if not 100 times larger. By the end of the conquest, the Mawali are 10 times the number of the Arabs, if not more. Right? The most sacred tribes of the Arabs, like the Quraysh, right? Muhammad's own tribe, goes from being, let's say, maybe 10,000 people spread across the desert to now a tribe that is hundreds of thousands of people, 99% of whom are not Arabic. Don't speak Arab, but they're Maula. Because when you become Maula, you're not just vanilla flavored, okay? Every Maula has to have a tribe. To be Maula means to be accepted into this or that tribe. And so now the Arabs number in the millions, supposedly, except most of them don't speak Arabic and have never been to the Arabian Peninsula. The Persian Empire is entirely conquered by Maula. There are almost no Arabs involved whatsoever. And these Mawali have legal status because they are officially members of Arab tribes. But because they don't speak Arabic and most of them are not Muslim, they feel themselves as second-class citizens. And so the Arabs back home consider them little more than slaves. And this is where we get into it again. Like, what does the word Maula mean? Does it mean a free person? Does it mean a slave? Even if it means a free person, most of the Mawali are not well off. They've joined this conquest in the hopes of riches, but most of them get nothing. But here's, the, here's what I find most interesting. Any Maula can make Maula. Let me say that again, right? So if I want to become a part of the Arab conquest, I should find some actual Arab guy who speaks Arabic and come up and say, hey, I want to join your club. And he says, great, I'm of the Quraysh. Now so are you. You are a Maula of the Quraysh. That dude can walk 15 feet to his brother or his uncle or a random guy on the street and say, hey, you want to join the Quraysh? You're with me. There are problems with this system, right? Because very quickly, the Quraysh it has no control over this. None of the tribes have control over this. It's, um, it's sort of like the, uh, I don't know, I, I know this isn't medieval history class, but people love to talk about how the, the real fall of European culture comes when there's a change in how knighthood is granted. I, I know this is the digression. I Forgive me. The classical understanding of only a king can make a knight, right? You've done great service to the king, you come up, you kneel, he touches your shoulder with a sword and says, rise, sir, awesome of the whatever. But at some point in the past, we're not exactly sure when, laws change so that any knight can make a knight. And once you have that, you go from a powerful position held by only a few hundred people to now they're literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who say, well, actually, I'm, I'm Sir Michael. 
Oh yeah, who made you a knight? Well, that, that dude over there, the one who's pissed drunk down in the ditch. Yeah, he's a knight too. In the same way, Maula goes from being a small class of people who are merchants or traders, people who are doing business with the Arabs too, this colossal population. Gibbon is, up to this point I've said, Gibbon is about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And you're thinking like, well, then we must be done with him, right? Because the Roman Empire is done. Uh-uh. Right? Gibbon is not, even though the book is called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he takes it way past the, the fall. Much of modern Islamophobia draws its inspiration from the writings of Gibbon. Not that he was necessarily Islamophobic, right? He doesn't, I don't think he ever met a Muslim in his life. So th these are not things that where he's actually afraid of a Muslim coming and hurting him personally. But Gibbon, considered the, one of the greatest heroes of European history, to be a fellow by the name of Charles Martel. Now, Martel just means hammer, okay? That's not his last name. This is a nickname given to him. We're going to talk about why. But Gibbon misunderstood him. Like, Gibbon was not a, a very good historian of the source material. So Gibbon thought that Charles was called the hammer for killing Muslims. That's not actually true. That's not how he got the name. But today, 99.9% .9 of people who know about Charles Martel think that's where his name came from. So according to Gibbon, these are all direct quotes from his book, quote, Christendom delivered by the genius and fortune of one man no sooner had he collected his forces than battle began, an encounter which would change the history of the world. Gibbon tells us it's a battle that takes place over seven days. That's a, that's a long battle. Six days before the Orientals, as he calls the Muslims. This is something that's going to come up in this class again. When you say the word Orient or Oriental, especially as an American, if, if you're hearing this word in American English, it has changed greatly from its original usage in British English. Right? In British English, it could very often mean people from India or people from Africa or people from Jerusalem. And now somehow in Amer for Americans, this means like Chinese, maybe Koreans, maybe Japanese, but very specifically only East, East, Easternmost Asia. So when he says Orientals, don't be confused. He means non-Europeans. The Franks, Charles is a Frank, asserted the civil and religious freedom of their posterity. This is a really amazingly weird sentence. So let me, let me break this down. They asserted the civil and religious freedom of their posterity. What, what posterity means the future, right? Like if you write something down and, and put it in a box and bury it underground, you're doing it to save it for posterity. So the Franks are asserting a civil and religious freedom that they don't actually have. They're going to have in the future. 
So what Gibbon is basically saying, oh, look at France today, in his day, this means the 1700s. Today, France is great. And it's only freight, it's only great because the Franks, quote, asserted the religious and civil freedom of their... It's a very strange way to say France is only great today because Charles Martel killed all those Orientals. Gibbon tells us the night after the battle, the Saracen armies, as he calls the Muslims, turned on each other and were gone by the next morning. They fled in terror away from Frank armies, Frankish armies, how do I say this, right? From the Franks. It's to the point where, in the same way that you learned in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, even today, most British citizens who speak English will learn of the Moors at Tours. I know that this is not a focus of our education, but for a long time, this was true in Europe. This is very clear fear of the Muslim conquest of Europe because of a battle fought here in the 700s. Here's the problem. There's no historical evidence that anything like described by, by Gibbon happened. And yet it is the foundational element of most modern Islamophobia, the idea that only through the brave violence of a handful of European Christian men was Europe saved. And I'm going to give you an example from a decidedly far-right historian, someone that I don't necessarily agree with. Even Daniel Pipe says this is bonkers. Even Daniel Pipe says, like, there's no evidence for this. Quote from him directly. What would have happened had Muslims won the Battle of Poitiers, the Battle of Tours in 733? Not much. A bit more plunder, but no lasting consequence. I want to put a fine point on this without coming off too heavy-handed. The Battle of Poitiers, the Battle of Tours, whatever you want to call it, was absolutely lost to obscurity and oblivion until Gibbon wrote about it. So the battle happens in the 700s, okay? Not a big deal, small little battle. It's barely written about. I don't know how Gibbon learned about it, but when Gibbon learns about it and writes about it in the 1700s, a thousand years after it happened, he plucks it out of obscurity and puts it on a pedestal and says, right here, everybody, look, right here. This is the moment. This is the moment when Europe could have fallen to the onslaught of the, the, the bloody-handed Saracens, the evil Orientals. And everyone looked at him and said, oh, wow, okay, cool, right? Because we like that story. We like the idea of an event that changed history forever. Though nowadays people are more aware of this, you know, the butterfly effect, right? Every event changes history forever. That's kind of a mean, meaningless expression. Says Pipes. But Edward Gibbon saw that battle as a key turning point in European history. Here is his renowned counterfactual. So counterfactual, I know is an intimidating word. It means what if. 
counterfactual as in it's not true, but what if you had a million dollars? Sadly, you don't. So his counterfactual quote, he's quoting Gibbon here. So this is not Pipe, this is Gibbon. If the Muslims had won at Poitiers, at Tours, the Arabian fleet might have sailed without a naval combat into the mouth of the Thames, where London is. Perhaps the interpretation of the Quran would now be taught in the schools of Oxford. Her pulpits might demonstrate to a circumcised people the sanctity and truth of the revelation of Muhammad, as how it was being spelled in the 1700s. Right? This is what Gibbon is saying. Had Charles Martel not been there to kill all these Muslims, we all would be Muslim today. Oh, perish the thought. So again, reminding you, in the 700s, when this battle happens, Spain is ruled by a Muslim political entity we call the Umayyads. Does not mean everyone here is Muslim. They're not. Right? The majority of the people are Christian. There's a small minority of Jewish people. And their rulers are mostly Muslim, but not all. They have conquered most of southern France. And these cities here have relationships with them. I mean relationships. Like the rulers are marrying sons and daughters to each other. They have treaties. There's trade. Most of the coinage, like the, the, the actual silver and gold coins that are used throughout Europe until the 1400s, are those minted here in Spain. This is the cultural and religious, I'm going to say Mecca, but that's a bit of a point. So, this is the most powerful, richest part of Europe until the Renaissance, right? What is today Spain and Portugal? So, I know that green line is kind of hard to see. There's, I just added a green line here. In 733, this part was temporarily added through trade and treaties, not conquest, by intermarrying between the leaders of these cities. Okay? So there are supposedly good Christian men and women who are leaders here who are marrying their children together with Muslims because they don't care. Okay? It's about political will. It's about dominance. It is nothing like the idea that like, Christians and Muslims and Jews cannot live together. That's not the case. This section of France is intimidated by this, how do we say, treaty that's being signed. Charles, who we call Martel now, feels betrayed because he had his own treaty in this area that he felt, feels is not being recognized. So this is because, let me back up here. So when I say this Berber leader, I mean the guy who is in control of this area, who is from North Africa, he has made a, a series of treaties with local Christian leaders saying, hey, we're all the same people. I don't care that you're Christian or Jewish. I don't care that you're not Muslim. Let's expand, let's be friends. Treaties are signed, daughters are married to sons. This specific Muslim leader is considered too disloyal. He's considered too ambitious because he's not Arab. 
Right? When I say he's Berber, understand this is a person from North Africa, from the area on the other side of the Mediterranean. And because of this, he himself is attacked from the south by other Muslims. This is the more important of the battles, not the one in 733. The one in 730 is that Berber army being attacked from behind by Arabs. In response, Charles invades from the north so that this ambitious Berber leader who is trying to unite Christians and Muslims and Jews is attacked from the south and from the north by both Christians and Muslims. This guy here, Odo, he's the one who married his daughter to this Berber's son. He's the one who made this treaty, who made this agreement, and he realizes the only way out of this is to say that you've never been in favor of this deal in the first place. Please come save me, Charles of the Franks. So, how do we know any of this happened the way that I'm telling you? Because the documents survive. Gibbon, if he read these things, there's no evidence of it. Maybe he assumed that there is no surviving evidence, but there is. The Mos Arab Chronicle is written by Christians in Spain. Quote, then Abdurrahman cut through the mountains so he might invade the land of the Franks. He joined battle with Odo after crossing the Haron River. Odo slipped away. Abdurrahman decided to despoil Tours by destroying the palaces and burning its churches. There he confronted the consul of Austrasia by the name of Charles. After seven days of razzia, which we would usually translate as raids or skirmishes, they drew battle lines and fought fiercely. The northern peoples remained immobile like a wall, specifically like a wall of ice, holding together like a glacier in the cold regions. In the bleak of an eye, annihilated the Arabs with the sword. The Franks, greater in number and arms, killed the King Abdurrahman. This is why this matters, right? That the, the leader of this raid, Abdurrahman, has been killed. That night, the Franks put up their swords, despicably saving themselves to fight the next day. So the Christian who's writing this chronicle is angry with the Franks for not doing more. The next day they discovered all the troops of the Ishmaelites, the Muslims, had left. They had fled silently by night in tight formation. Having no intention of pursuing, pursuing the Saracens, the Muslims took the spoils and the booty, and that's it. The only Christian chronicle that Gibbon knew about gives almost no account other than Abdurrahman had been killed. Okay, so the last thing I'm gonna say, and then, then you're free to go. Before Gibbon was alive, right? In the 1200s, in the 1500s, in the 800s, the only reason anybody knew about this battle was because of the miracle of the, the sponges. I, I, I saved the joke for last. I'm, it's a real miracle as witnessed by the Catholic Church. The idea is that this is the original focus of the story. Charles Martel gets that name, we're gonna talk about next class actually, because he kills Saxons. He's the hammer of the Germans. In the original version of the story, Odo is so afraid of the Franks and the Muslims, he asks for help from the Pope. And the Pope sends sponges. Probably just to like clean tables with or whatever, and I mean sponges, like the things you use to wash dishes, the things you use to wash tables. The problem is Odo, being a practically a barbarian from France, has never seen a sponge before. Has no idea what they're for. 
And so he has them cut up into tiny pieces, and everybody's supposed to eat it. Because it's a gift from the Pope. And afterward, we're told every man who got to eat a bit of that sponge, they all survived the battle. It's a miracle. Right? And so this is often, this is the only reason the battle's remembered. Because it's like this, well, okay, they were idiots, right? This, this sense of like, well, hey, you know, the Pope helped us out by sending us these sacred sponges. And when the Pope learns about this, he's like, those morons. Right? I, they're just sponges, dude. You, like, they're just, I thought you might like some sponges. It was a gift. I could have sent you handkerchiefs. I could have sent you whatever. This is what it means to be a historian, okay? This is, if I t- wrap this up in a bow. It is the power to turn a battle that is only remembered as a joke into now the battle that changed the course of the world. 